Well, good morning. I want to invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 19. Last week, we looked to the closing of 1 Kings 18 with a sermon titled, A Man Like Us, Part 1. It was drawing from James chapter 5 when James connected Elijah's prayer to the truth that he is a man with a nature like ours. This week we come to part two of that sermon series and are reminded once again that Elijah is a man like us. We'll see it this week in different ways. I pray that you, as well as I have been, will be both challenged and encouraged in this text. I'll acknowledge from the beginning that there are multiple ways that we can understand this text. There are multiple interpretations out there. I am going to present to you what I believe the Lord has led me to see this week, and I, in doing so, will tell you that I stand on the shoulders of others, uh, namely uh, commentator Dale Ralph Davis, and will um, share with you thoughts that he's helped me to see. As we prepare to go to this text, we'll, uh, we'll break it out into portions. I'll begin by reading uh, verses 1 through 8. But before I do, kids, let me have your attention, okay? Let me tell you something to listen for today. You're going to hear about how the Lord cared for his prophet Elijah. I want you to listen. Listen for how the Lord cared for Elijah Consider maybe that's how he cared for us, okay? So listen for that and talk to your parents about it today. And now let's look to the inerrant and infallible word of God. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we, we come to a text that speaks to us directly, and I ask that you would give all, preacher and listener, the 
you would give us all listening ears and a listening heart. That we might see what you have for us this day. And in so doing, we might know the comforts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, let me start by just sharing with you, uh, I, I don't make assumptions uh, about your being here. I don't make an assumption that just because you are here, that you are following Jesus Christ, that you're trusting in Him as, as your Savior. I don't make that assumption, and I want you to know that if you are here and that would not describe you, then you are welcome in this place. You're welcome here to, to hear this message of, of God's Word and Consider what he might be telling you to, to wrestle with these truths that we proclaim. So, so don't make that assumption about you. But I am making a broader assumption. And the broader assumption that I am making is that I am speaking to the church. And the church is the body of Christ. So, so those who may not be following Jesus, there is a blessing for you as I speak to those who are. And I ask the church, have you ever, or do you now, feel like you are the only one, the only one following Jesus? Maybe you might feel like that in the workplace. Maybe you might feel like that in school. Maybe you might even feel like that in your own family. If so, how did that, or perhaps how does that, feel? Do you feel lonely? Are you wondering, when is the good Lord going to show up like you expected Him to show up? And in that struggle, where do you go? Elijah has just seen the Lord work in, in mighty ways. He's seen the widow of Zarephath's son raised from the dead. He has seen fire and he's seen rain. It's like James Taylor. Likely, he was feeling hopeful that there would be a revival in Israel. And to some extent, on Mount Carmel, there was at least a semblance of revival. And, and then last week at the end of chapter 18, we saw Ahab humble, uh, we saw Elijah humble himself before Ahab. Likely Elijah is expecting Ahab himself to turn and follow the Lord. But now this week, within the span of three verses, all those memories seem to fade into black. What what likely started out as hope has given way very quickly to despair. What's behind that despair? Is it fear? Or could it be something else? I've come to believe 
to have studied this passage that rather than fear, this despair that Elijah is feeling is likely rooted in his own brokenness over the sin in Israel and maybe what he perceives to be a lack of success on the part of the Lord and maybe a lack of success in his own ministry. Now, in these first eight verses, I want to I show you my rationale for that understanding because the rationale for that understanding is going to then pave the way for where we're going to go in verses 9 through 18. In verse 3, um, the text tells us, then he was afraid. Now, this is one of those rare, very rare instances in which I'm going to actually side with the King James Version instead of the ESV. <laughs> See, the King James Version uh, translates the opening of verse 3, not as then he was afraid, but and when he saw. See, I believe that Hebrew, the original, the wording there is not referring to fearing. He's referring to seeing. In other words, Elijah saw the response of Jezebel. And in seeing, he despaired. It was a hardness. To her heart. And in that hardness, everything that he had been hoping for in the Lord's work, possibly even in his own ministry, it just vanished before his eyes. Now, that notion of Elijah responding not in fear but in, in, in brokenness is consistent with what we see in verse 4. You see, when Elijah saw... He took off. But he wasn't just trying to get away from Jezebel. You see, he left Israel and went south to Judah, and then he kept on going. He went to Beersheba, which was 120 miles to the south. So he wasn't merely leaving Jezebel's presence. He was leaving everyone's presence. Again... What do you do? Where do you go when you hit rock bottom? Perhaps we can relate to Elijah, a man like us. At the point of despair, he left even his servant and went out into the wilderness. And there, Elijah doesn't sound like a man who is fearing death and Verse 4, it tells us he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah is asking to die, just not at the hands of the pagan idolater Jezebel. I think Elijah is despairing because of the sin of Israel, because the sin of of Jezebel because the plan of God as he perceives it and because of the plan of his own ministry is not working. But why might Elijah think that? 
again, he's a man like us, and I believe that he is focusing on what we might consider a series of half-truths. As we'll see in the next section that we'll read, Elijah believes that he's the only one left. Again, a half-truth. There aren't many. There aren't many, but he is not the only one. He also believes that the message isn't working. Again, half-truth. Let's not forget what happened on Carmel when so many worshipped the Lord. This is a result of Elijah listening to these half-truths rather than the whole truth. He sees Jezebel as the is the largest figure in his eyes. So what is the Lord's response to Elijah's despair? We see it in verse 6 and 7. It's the response of tender care and direction. Once again, the Lord fed Elijah. Elijah wakes up to breakfast in bed. The Lord provides a cake. He provides jar of a jar of water and then as the Lord sustains Elijah he sends him out to continue his journey further south let's pick back up with verses 9 through 18 there he came to a cave and lodged in it and behold the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him what are you doing here Elijah and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong winds tore the mountains and broken pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, 
and every mouth that has not kissed him. Again, as Dale Ralph Davis uh, says, this journey screams not of panic, but of plan. The Lord sends Elijah to Horeb. Mount Horeb is also known by another name, Mount Sinai. Is the place at which the Lord met the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness. It's the place where the Lord gave the Israelites the law, where the Lord formed them into a nation, where the Lord met face to face with Moses, where the Lord passed before Moses, revealing to him his glory. And there at Horeb, there at Sinai, Elijah came to a cave. Only, again, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say he came to a cave. It says he came to the cave. The points to a very specific cave. Now, I'll acknowledge to you that this is a guess. But it is an educated guess at that. I wonder if the cave that the Lord sent Elijah to was also known in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22, as a cleft in the rock. If this was the cave where the Lord hid Moses when he passed before Moses, revealing to him his glory. It's a signal, I believe, in this text of the Lord's continuing care for his prophet Elijah. Now, if you have spent any time in your life in children's Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, or reading the various storybook Bibles that are out there, you have no doubt heard this account. And in hearing this account, likely there was a focus in the contrast between the big, loud noises and and signs of of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. But the contrast then is, is then made between those loud signs and the low whisper. We'll get there. I want you to understand that I think the weight of this text is elsewhere. On the question that we find on either side of that low whisper. There is a question Repeated in verse 9 and verse 13. Verse 9, the Lord asks, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? What is behind that question? Another way to think about it is, What is the tone behind that question? Was it rebuke? Or... Could it have been invitation? Did it come from an angry disciplinarian? What are you doing here, Elijah? Or could it have come from a loving father who is drawing out his child through question? I want us to consider 
that that's exactly what the Lord is doing here with Elijah, that he's drawing out Elijah's heart by drawing out the half-truths and which he is clinging to. So how did Elijah respond? Well, you heard it. And you heard it repeated twice. I've done everything you asked. And I'm the only one left. And now they're out to kill me. I'm all alone. And you don't seem to care. A man like us. A man like us. Elijah has has forgotten Obadiah. The, the servant of the Lord who, who saved 100 prophets. So at least by my count, we're up to 101. Elijah is not alone, but he's clinging to a half-truth. Elijah has forgotten those who responded on Mount Carmel when they, they, they bowed in worship before the Lord. Again, the half-truth. And then focusing on the half-truth, Elijah is despairing. So how would the Lord respond to this this denial of all that he has been doing? Like Moses before him, the Lord passed before Elijah in glory. But what's going on with the wind and the fire and and the earthquake? I think that the Lord is emphasizing the point. Remember, he has just revealed himself to Elijah in the big mighty signs. He's, he's raised the young widow's son from the dead. He's, he's shown himself in the fire on Mount Carmel. He's shown himself in the restoration of the rain which ended the drought. The Lord has shown himself in the big and miraculous signs. And so is that the only way that Elijah is to look for him? Is that the only way you and I are to look for him? point is the Lord spoke. He spoke His Word. It's easy for us to miss the emphasis when our focus is on the contrast. So often we we think about this text and think that our takeaway must be to listen for those, those quiet, maybe even silent little nudges that we think, or the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit moves in us, but I don't know that that is the takeaway here in this text. Instead, the Lord, our God, is revealing Himself to Elijah in and through His Word. Remember, Elijah is a prophet. Elijah is the prophet. And to the prophet, the Lord spoke. Whisper. We read in verse 13 as a repeat of the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? We get the same response from Elijah. But this time, I want to ask, what, what was behind the Lord's question? I've come to believe, as I have studied and prayed through this text, that, 
that in and through this question, the Lord is pursuing his prophet Elijah and giving him the clarity of his calling. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're not a victim. You're a prophet. You're not a victim. You're a prophet, and so receive my word. And the Lord continues to speak his word. Verses 15 through 18, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel, Meholah you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In this word that the Lord gives to Elijah, there is, there is comfort. The Lord is at least partially agreeing with Elijah's assessment. Partially. Because you see, half-truths are at least half-true. Sin is a problem. The Lord sees it. And the Lord is not done. He affirms some of what Elijah is saying, but not all. So in affirming, partially, the Lord commissions the prophet, get back in the game. (laughs) Go back up north. I'll finish the work, but you are going to be an instrument. You will anoint the next kings. You will anoint the next prophets, and they will see it through. How sweet is it that with everything that Elijah has said, and by implication of saying it, everything he's accused the Lord of doing or maybe not doing, the Lord doesn't rebuke Elijah for his overreach. And then he continues by telling Elijah of the others. There aren't many left, no. But you are not alone. You're not alone. What a kindness. What about us today? Is this merely an an interesting Bible story for us to look back on? Or could the Lord be asking a question of us? Here today. What are you doing here? And how are you tempted to answer that question? Can you relate to Elijah? I think the Lord is not only drawing something out of Elijah, I think He's drawing something out of us. He's been drawing something out of me. Because I'm not immune to the half-truths. This week we were planning worship, and I was laying out my understanding of this text for, for Michael and Jeff and Blake. And as I was doing that, I was talking through this, this, uh, this situation, this scenario where I said sin was continuing to reign. And as I said it, Jeff gently looked at me and said, 
is sin reigning? And I understood what he was saying. No. Sin is not reigning. Jesus is reigning. Sin is prevalent. The difference means everything. The half-truths, they are subtle. And in the subtlety of those half-truths, we, we miss the point that King Jesus reigns in the world and in our own hearts. So where are you hearing the half-truths? Where are you struggling with loneliness? Do you feel like you're the only one left following Jesus? Do you want to give up and just join the world? Some of you, I know, feel the struggle in the workplace. You have shared with me the struggle where you are torn between competing worldviews. For some of you, it shows up in, in the corporate world where you hear the constant barrage of a message of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, a, a message that hijacks the truth that our God has created beautifully a diverse people who in the beauty of their diversity bear His image uniquely and are joined together because we need one another to, to more fully worship Him in that diversity. But this message that we hear in the workplace is a hijacking of that and a competing worldview that says don't merely embrace the image of God in others but affirm and encourage a contrary and sinful worldview. I know that many of you are feeling this attack closing in and wondering if there are any others out there. Brothers and sisters, the struggle is real. But it's a half-truth. It's a half-truth. The competing voices don't win. This is, a, I believe, a timely message for us today because the Lord also has a purpose for us to be instruments of redemption where he has us not despairing but trusting and so wherever he has you I believe part of what the Lord is telling us in this text is to look and listen and persist to look around and to see the remnants. You're not alone. To listen to God's word. Not merely looking for some mighty sign in the sky, but to listen to the simple, timeless truths of Scripture and then to persist. To be faithful here. Wherever here is, or wherever the Lord might be sending you. And remember that our Lord has a perfect time frame. I think Elijah looked and despaired because he didn't see success. 
didn't fit his definition or his time frame, and so he had had enough. But you see, the Lord didn't give Elijah, and he doesn't give us a full picture, but he did comfort him with the clarity of his calling and the reminder that he wasn't alone. So the Lord called him to persevere. Maybe we also struggle because we also have our own definition of success. In the church, in the workplace, in the political climate. And so when what we see doesn't line up with what we expect from the Lord, what are we to do? It wasn't just Elijah. And it isn't just us. You see, it was also Jesus' cousin. The one who came to, to continue the prophetic line of Elijah. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, John the Baptist began to wonder. Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure you're the one? Are you sure this is the plan? John the Baptist looked around and, and what he saw didn't match his expectations. Maybe he looked at his own imprisonment and his life wasn't matching his own expectations. And so he sent his friends to go ask Jesus, are you sure? And to that question, Jesus responded with a simple timeless word of God. Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6, Jesus answered them, John the Baptist's friends, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is saying, I am the one. I am the one who has come to preach good news to the poor, good news of salvation, salvation that comes through a suffering servant who would die an atoning death so that sinners might be reconciled to a holy God. The kingdom of God goes forth according to the plan of God. And we have a sustaining picture of His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Wherever the Lord has you, be encouraged and be faithful. Moses needed that encouragement in Exodus chapter 34. Elijah needed it in 1 Kings 19. And John the Baptist needed it in Matthew 11. And that means it's okay for you and I to need it as well. And in his word, and through the word incarnate, Lord our God gives it to us. And so brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, then you are his. And he is yours. And you are not alone. Persevere in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for the, the pictures that you give us in Scripture that, that we can relate to all too well. 
We praise you for the encouragement you give us in Scripture that we are not alone, and ultimately we are not alone because you have come to put on flesh and to dwell among us so that in you we might see the glory of God, a glory that is full of grace and truth. Continue to show us that glory and draw us closer to yourself, we pray in Christ's name.